I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine for you all, making my prayer with joy, thankful for your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. And I am sure that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. It is right for me to feel thus about you all, because I hold you in my heart, for you are all partakers with me of grace, both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. For God is my witness how I yearn for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. And it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment so that you may approve what is excellent and may be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruits of righteousness which come through Jesus Christ to the glory and the praise of God. Amen and amen. There is no such being as a stagnant Christian. Today, each one of us is more Christian than he was yesterday or last week, or we are less Christian than we were yesterday or last week. We never remain exactly the same. To add to a phrase of the theologian Karl Barth, we never fully become Christian. We have only the possibility of becoming more Christian. And if that be the case, then the possibility also exists that we can become less Christian as day goes by. And it's very difficult to tell. Of course, we find in the scriptures we're not to judge each other. No, that's a scriptural no-no. That is something that we are not supposed to do at the commandment of Jesus Christ. Yet, we are required by our involvement within this relationship to look at ourselves and to judge ourselves to see whether or not we are growing closer to Christ and his ideals or further away from our master and our destiny. And thank the good Lord, Paul, in writing to the church at Philippi, gives unto us the idea or the markings of the Christian life. He gives to us a scale by which we can judge ourselves as to whether or not we are ascending or descending in our involvement with our Lord. And he starts out very simply in this particular passage which was read for our scripture reading today with the idea that you can judge yourself by looking at the joy that you have. The joy that you have. This is one of the marks of the Christian life. Now, we all know what we're talking about in Christian joy. We, we recognize it rather easily, don't we, in other people. And we hope that they see it in our witness. It's found in the skip, in the step, the, the smile on the face, the confidence in the spirit, the twinkle in the eye, the, 
the countenance of peace that rests within that person who has Christian joy. Oh, we recognize it, but it's very hard to define as to its beginnings. Where do you get it? How do you find it? There are many people about who express the idea that if they could just get this or get rid of that, they would have Christian joy. Or if they could just stay here or go there, they would have Christian joy. Or if they could just be this kind of person or not be like that kind of person, then they could have Christian joy. There are all sorts of advertisements as to how you can find this joy, this peace, this love, this faith, which the Bible tells us we ought to have. But there's only one way, according to Jesus, that you can have it. And it is this, as George Buckley tells us in one of his little books, the opposite of joy is not unhappiness. It is unbelief. And the amount of joy that you have in your life and exhilarates from your person is dependent upon your belief that you have in life and about God through Jesus Christ. You see, Jesus hit the nail on the head when he said there in John's Gospel, These things have I spoken unto you, that my joy might be in you, and that your joy might be full. These things that I have spoken unto you. You see, that's what makes for joy. What things? Things that you can find that Jesus said in the scriptures, and if you don't know some of them, I would make reference to John 14, 15, 16. Some of the other places in the gospel, scriptures like this, I will not leave you desolate. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. Things like this, and we could go on, go on, go on, but ideas, meanings, words of Scripture, believing in them, that is what brings the joy that passeth all understanding and enables you to achieve and to register this mark of the Christian life in your own being. It all comes back to the Word of God. Hearing the Word of God understanding the Word of God, believing the Word of God, brings joy. And maybe one of the reasons why you do not have the joy that you wish you had is simply that through personal devotion, through study, you're not hearing the Word of God because you're not reading it. Or if hearing the Word of God, you don't understand it, because in church school or in academies, in Bethel, in, in different opportunities that are open to you, you don't take advantage nor understand. Or if you do understand, you don't believe it. And for somebody who does not take these words of Jesus, believes them, banks his life and his personal philosophy upon them, There'll never be the advantage of even finding Christian joy. That's where it comes from. And by our fruits we are known. And if we have not that fruit of joy in our lives, 
I'm afraid we're not drawing closer to, but rather further from, Jesus Christ and the destiny for which he has created us in Christian fulfillment. That's one of them, Christian joy. Measure yours, not another's, your own. Do you have it? Is it increasing or decreasing? I guarantee it will depend upon the Word of God, whether or not you're hearing it, understanding it, and believing it. A second marking for the Christian life is that of sacrifice, the sacrifices that you make. Paul says here in the sixth the verse of this first chapter of the letter to Philippi, and I am sure that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. Now there's something in the English translation that is lost from the original Greek. When we read this, we do not get that idea, but in the Greek, the word which is used for beginning and bringing to completion, those words are Greek words. Greek words that deal specifically with the sacrifice. And what Paul is talking about here is the whole sacrificial system, which has been a part of the Christian faith even back in the days when it was purely Jewish and began the present Judeo-Christian faith. Our faith is built upon sacrifice. Go way back to the beginning chapters of the Bible and you find the system of sacrifice developing as a means of pleasing God. You have the sin offerings, you have the peace offerings, you have the burnt offerings, you have our religious forefathers sacrificing bulls and lambs and sheep and uh, pigeons and, and turtle doves and everything else. All of these being pure and unblemished without spot, they are brought to the sacrifice place so that they may offer, be offered unto God so that these will present a sacrifice from the people. It's a very beautiful system of how to please God. And of course, the greatest offering was made when God himself sacrificed his own son, Jesus Christ, so that we may have communion and be at one with God forever and ever. But the idea of sacrifice, though found in its completion in Jesus Christ, has not ended in the Christian church. And that's one of the things that people do not understand today and causes the Christian church to be weak. Paul says to it that we are to be individuals who are still making sacrifice. Present your bodies a living sacrifice, wholly acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. No longer, you see, do we bring cattle into the church. No longer do we bring grain in as a tribute and an offering unto our God. We bring our bodies. We bring our time, our talents, and our treasures as living sacrifices unto God. And we do this not to please God, trying to gain what he has already given us in Jesus Christ, but out of thanksgiving for what we know and claim to be ours through the death, the resurrection, and ascension of Jesus Christ, which has effected totally our reunion with our Creator. This is why. We make sacrifices. And any church, any church that allows its people to believe that they can come to worship without making sacrifice or can come to study without sacrificing the best in their preparation 
or can come together in Christian fellowship without bringing the best of their personalities is a church that is not only robbing God of the offerings that are due unto him in thanksgiving, but even what is more important, they rob people. They rob people of that opportunity of making a living sacrifice unto God. This past week, many miles from here, I was in conversation with a woman who is a part of a church that is presently going through the struggles that come when part of the congregation feels it can no longer worship with the other part of the congregation. A split has been caused in her church. And the pastor and many of the people have left to go and form a new church. That's always tragic when that happens. And this woman was saying, though, she felt that maybe it was a blessing in disguise for being one who did not leave. She now finds that her presence is very important in that large growing church which now is split in half. No longer does she feel that she can stay home on Sunday morning and let the other people come. No longer can she say, well, let's let the young people teach our children. I've had my day. No longer can she say, well, let those money people support the church. She realizes that she has to dig down deeper and give of her gifts. And this woman is making a sacrifice, you see. A sacrifice. And though she was complaining to me about it, the twinkle in her eye showed to me the joy that was hers that comes when you make sacrifices for God. And ladies and gentlemen, when congregations get fat and rich and prosperous, and when they forget the root from which they have come and the rock from which they have been hewn, and when we forget those days then it was rough, and we forget to require sacrifice from the people, we're in trouble. You people are here today and you made sacrifice and praise God for it. You didn't come here today because you had no place else to go. And though I always say it to the wrong people, they're not here. Some people today didn't make sacrifice to come here. And that upsets me. What do we do in a rich, affluent society like ours? When God has rained so heavily upon us his blessings and his gifts. And we forget. And we don't have time. Or when it comes to worship, or church school, or youth meetings, or things like that. God and his church always come in last. And people are making sacrifices. We make them every day for everything that we do. How can you get God and the church and those things for which he stands higher on the sacrificial list that people make? I know of only one way, and that is to remind you and remind myself that sacrifice of time, talent, and gifts unto God and His church must be made, and to make sure that I make them, and to make sure that everybody knows that sacrifice is a definite sign and a marking as to whether or not you are increasing in your faith or decreasing in your faith. Let's not go making excuses. It's one way or the other. And it depends so much upon the sacrifice which you are willing to make. 
to God and to Christ. The third marking according to Paul, and here we read about this in the seventh and the eighth verses. It is right for me to feel thus about all of you because I hold you in my heart, for you are all partakers with me, partakers of grace, both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. Paul indicates that another marking of where you stand on the Christian scale is determined by the partnerships that you form. Now, all of us are in partnership with somebody or something. With whom do you or with what do you make your partnerships? Paul claims that a Christian will make partnerships with those who share the grace of God, those who are really concerned about defending the gospel against her enemies, about being in relationship and partnership with those who are interested in building up the faith, in declaring the gospel and confirming the truth. He claims also that we should be in partnership and relationship with those people who are suffering. How unique it is that, John, you're with us here today. That we suffer with those who suffer, especially those who are suffering because of their stance and the persecution that comes upon them because of their desire and efforts to fulfill the teachings of the gospel. Now, are you in partnership with those kinds of people? That's how you register as to whether or not your Christianity is increasing or decreasing by the partners that you have and which you support with your time, your talents, your money, and your sacrifices. If for some reason or another, and I don't care how the Spirit of God has brought it to you, but if today you see you are really becoming convicted of the idea that some of these people who have been making fun of the church have been ridiculing Christian ideas and who say it's old-fashioned. If they're getting you a little uptight and you get a little angry with them and decide that it's high time we return to the principles and the foundation of the faith, praise God. Praise God. The Spirit of God is provoking within you the desire to be in partnership in the right way. If somehow this day you are becoming convinced more and more that it is important, not only for our young people, but for adults as well, to be grounded soundly in the faith, to be able to have an answer for the questions, for the faith that exists within you, if you are really concerned that we've got to get again to the foundations and the principles of our faith, Praise God. Praise God. The Spirit of God is working within you to try to get you to join partnership with people who want to confirm the gospel. If, for some reason or another, you are being touched by people who suffer, this world problem, when you realize that two-thirds of the world today will have to eat less than a teaspoon of rice and a cup of tea to drink, and that hurts you, and you feel that something has got to be done. If when you hear the cries of people who are suffering and perplexed and troubled, and it upsets you, praise God, praise God, you are beginning to form 
partnerships with people who care about suffering. This is the way you judge. But if people who are making fun of the church, people who couldn't care less what the church is doing, people who question every attempt that you give in trying to present a cold water in the name of Jesus Christ, a cup of cold water in the name of Jesus Christ, and think you're ridiculous for trying to do it. Father, I'm sorry. I'm afraid these people are going down. Not up. Look at the partnerships that you have formed. Or are they, are they united in trying to be sons of light or sons of darkness? Are you in partnership with those who are trying to do good or with evil? Judge for yourself. And the last marking that Paul gives to us, beside the joy that you show, sacrifices you make, the partnerships you form, he says a way that you can judge yourself as to concerns the love that you give. The love that you give. And he says there in the 10th verse, or the 9th verse, and it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more and more and more with all knowledge and all discernment. How does a person judge his love? Is his love greater today than it was yesterday or less? Paul says that's not as difficult to figure out as you might think. He says love is the basis for all knowledge. You know, it took me a long time to catch that. And it really wasn't until I was in my study this week that I began to understand it. He says, love is the basis for all knowledge. And he's right, you know. It's when you love some particular subject that you begin to learn all about it. You get in and you root and you study and you dig. It's when you fall in love with somebody that you want to know all that there is about that body. Love is the basis for knowledge. And when you love somebody or something enough, you become knowledgeable. And when you become knowledgeable, it's only a short step until you be, are able to discern and you're able to be sensitive and you're able to perceive. Yes, you fall in love with somebody, you get to know that person. Before long, you see, you are sensitive to what that person likes and what he or she does not like. And you try very hard only to be sensitive to the place where you please that person whom you love. Same with the subject. Get to know about a subject, and pretty soon you are going to have expertise in being able to perceive what is right and what is wrong according to the basis of that particular subject. And then, you see, once you become sensitive to people and when you become perceptive to ideas, you're able to grow and grow and grow. And as Paul says, you become pure. And you know what Jesus says about those people who are pure in their love, pure in their heart. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they see God. And you know, that's what it's all about, isn't it? We're here on life so that people may see us, 
may see our good works, may see our joy, our sacrifices, our partnership, and our love. And in seeing those things in us, they can glorify our Father who is in heaven. And folks, you know, that, that's what it's all about. That's why we're here. Not turn big paychecks, live in big houses, drive many automobiles, and go to fat churches. We're here to glorify God and to say to the whole world, here is a being that God has created, that God loves. Isn't it wonderful? Anybody can be this type of being. And when we have people looking at this church and looking at us and say, Praise be God! Then you see it can be marked down in the history of all Christendom that we are people who are growing, people who are becoming more Christian, and people who know what life is all about. Praise God! And may all of us, as we join together anew, be conscious of who we are and whether or not in the eyes of God we're helping Christ to build the kingdom or whether or not Christ could get along much better in his kingdom without us. Because, folks, we're either helping him or we're not. Amen. Our Father and our God, you loved us. You showed it to that in Christ Jesus. You love us even still. You give us your word. You give us your spirit. You give us your instruction. You even slap our hands from time to time so that we can know and believe. Father, please, please help us in these times when sometimes our blessings become our curse. Forgive us when our prosperity is making us poor. Forgive us, Father, when we forget what life is all about. And help us. Please, Father, help us to help you to glorify the Father and to praise the name of the Son. And now may the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, and the communion of His Holy Spirit be and abide with you all now and forevermore.